Hello. Hey, John. Well, hi, Dan. How are you? Uh, I'm Jim Dandy. Good. How are you? Good. Well, the air finally turned itself off, so I can uh, I can talk without um, like the. I mean, it's the equivalent of like a small hurricane. The way it, the air conditioning vents sound in this tiny room in which I'm forced to record. Yeah, yeah. You uh, you folks there in uh, hot places mm-hmm. got all these air conditioning things that uh, that we don't know about up here in the in the cool temperate climates. Yeah, right. Lucky. Got to get used to it, I guess. The you know the the way the air conditioning works is you know it. At a certain temperature, it will turn on, and then at a certain temperature, it will turn off. But in this room, which is in the, the very top of the house, which of course is the hottest, I don't know why, but the 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 way the air comes out of these vents, it's incredibly loud, very very mm. loud. And mm, I don't loud I, air. I've tried to remove the vent cover; it, that doesn't seem to make a difference. It's something back in the ductwork or something. So. I have to have no air conditioning running, which means nine yeah. months out of the year in here, it's I'm it's usually in the at least in the eighties in this room. Maybe there's a skeleton in the in the vent. Could be. Have you looked for a skeleton? And there's nothing in, I can see as far as I can look in there, but um, maybe, maybe there's pirate gold. Maybe there's a bag of money <laughs> that someone in Texas no someone in Texas found uh, out. I don't think the uh, house isn't quite old enough for that, but you're right. Gang murder site. Anything anything is possible. But uh, so I have to turn the air off and, uh, and, and I try any, any chance that I get, I'll turn it on to make it cooler. So like if there's like a break in between things or like any opportunity I get, I'll try to run it. And then when I turn it off, usually it just turns right off. But I don't know if you know this because I don't know if you've had to deal with air conditioners. There's two different parts of the air conditioner. There's the compressor Mm -hmm. and there's the fan. And the compressor mm-hmm. is usually like in your attic or in a dedicated closet. And that's, that's the same concept as a compressor in, in any air conditioning system. That's what's actually doing the cooling. And then there's the fan unit outside, which is what's pulling the air in and blowing it through the system and, and powering it basically. And so they work together. And even after the air conditioner has sensed that it should turn off, then there's like this delayed time where it has to tell the fan to also turn off. And then, and that usually happens right away. Today it just kept going, went for like an extra like five minutes. I don't know what's going on. It makes me worry because I don't want it to break. If it breaks, that's, that's bad. That's bad. Do you feel, um, do, do you feel a sense of vulnerability living in a place that can't quite support human life? Um, I mean, everywhere in America has either a time of year where it's uncomfortably hot or mm. uncomfortably cold. Yeah. But it seems to me that, you know, increasingly the Southwest, you know, like, like if you lived in Phoenix, right. Um, people have survived there, right? You build a little <laughs> Adobe thing, you go in in the summer and you, you lay down in a, in a, in a pit that you dug in the dirt. Sure. And I, I don't know what, like ladle a drop of precious water on yourself to just try and dissipate the heat. But increasingly, you know, we're all much weaker than, than we once were. I mean, as people, if the air can, if the electricity went off, I know you think about this, you think about disasters all the time. Yeah, I do. How 
long do you think you could live in Austin if there was no bubble, no shield of technology that kept you cool in summer, warm in winter? I mean, at least, at least as long as it would take me to get the truck packed up. <laughs> but, but seriously, like I'm being like, serious, you, I would not, could, I would not stay. That's not there. I'm could not you kidding. endure? No, you do not, not. You would not endure. No, absolutely not. And I remember when is, I, I visited a friend of mine, uh, it was actually a business, a business thing that took me out to Phoenix. And I remember we were driving and we were picking up one of the other team members who lived a little bit more out of the way. And we drove, I mean, it, it was, it was maybe five minutes outside of Phoenix and it was immediate desert. Like it was like Wiley coyote desert. And I, I, I said to, uh, my then boss who was driving, I said, uh, you know, why, why is it that you live in a place that's clearly not meant for human beings to exist in? Like it's mm. really, really not like a, a place to live and com Texas by comparison. I mean, we have lakes and rivers here. We have streams, there's natural vegetation, there are forests and animals surviving. Like it, it might, it might suck when it gets really hot, but you could live here. If yeah, you knew yeah. what you were doing in the woods, you could easily survive here. I mean, there's sure. so many creeks and rivers Creek, and lakes. Trees and, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, but animals. like, it's not just just desert with a cactus once every couple miles. And that would make me really nervous. Like, that would make me nervous. This would, be, this would be inconvenient if we had none of the modern amenities, but it, we could do it. But in, in like Arizona, it's just, what do you do? It says here there are 14 and a half million people in what they are describing, the census department is describing as the desert Southwest. Oh. And that is actually a surprisingly limited range of just sort of the little, the nose of Texas and then just kind of the bottom third of New Mexico, Arizona and Nevada. And then that little bit of um, California that touches Nevada and Arizona. That's uh -huh. like an air arid wasteland, the salt and sea type of zone. Uh, but it's actually a surprisingly small kind of area down around the border, 14 million people there. It says that that geographic area is defined by precipitation of less than eight inches a year. And in uh, Austin, don't you get some rainstorms where it's eight inches in a, in oh, we 24 get lots hours? Of rain. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just one of those questions. I, uh, the thing about the thing about living here in the Northwest is that if everything breaks down, um, it's just about the same as it is now. Right. Like it's not if the whole the whole uh, giant in, uh, industry and and power and and even like groceries and toilet paper it could all go away and and um we would just go back to eating hazelnuts here i think uh -huh. um it wouldn't be it wouldn't be significantly it certainly would not be a case where within six hours we were in one hell or another you mm -hmm. know yeah uh, and growing up in alaska you very much felt that feeling of standing on one side of a door and, and pulling everything tight around your face and going, okay, everybody ready? 
And here we go. And it's like stepping through an airlock. Oh, my gosh. Like, would that be just a regular part of your day, like getting somewhere? Well, I mean, when it was really cold. Most yeah. of the time, it wasn't really cold. Even in the, in the dead of winter, it's cold. But it's not, like, really cold. Right. But it would get, when it would get really cold, yeah, you're just like, how do I get from here to there in the shortest amount of time? And mm. please, please don't let there be any variable that introduces itself where I would have to go the long way or God forbid that something wouldn't work. And, you know, during that whole time growing up, I, from the time I got my driver's license until the time I moved away, I drove a predictably varied selection of cars that barely ran. Mm -hmm. So every time you start, every time you turn the key in a car, you're like, please start. No, I've heard, you then, have lyrics uh, reflecting that. I, I, I do. I've spent so much time listening to a starter go and going, please fucking come on, come on, <sighs> come on, baby. And then also cars where you're driving along and you're like, just keep running. Just keep, we have, I can see the end in sight. The lights of the city are just right over. Just keep running, baby. And it's not like you're about to run out of gas. It's like the car is on its last legs. And that's a bad way to live in it in a, um, in a wackadoodle climate. Yeah. But it's not, um, you know, it's not pressing. And I guess I can't think of a time since Krakatoa (laughs) Uh where there really has been a disaster of any magnitude that interrupted the progress of, you know, the, the, the inexorable march of progress. Mm Mm-hmm of civilization. Once we institute, once we put something to work, once something starts to, once a giant wheel starts turning, once the flywheel of something starts spinning, it's very hard. I mean, in specific instances, sure. uh, Factories close, but technology doesn't, um, doesn't quit. There are dead ends that we don't pursue, but we've never encountered in, 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 uh, in living memory or before really a situation where a disaster came and, and we went back to first principles. Mm -hmm. Can you think of any, right? Is it not not off the top of my head? I mean, locally, locally, you know, like the Galveston hurricane and things like that. Is that kind of what you mean? Like, like there have been something, something larger, more systemic, like, you know, the burning of the library of Alexandria Mm. and we, and we lost, geometry or whatever you know the uh, west the west <laughs> okay okay i see what you're talking about that's really only happened forgot. like one time in, in 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 history right i think i learned that at disney world happened once oh, oh really just one one time i think one time i think one time it feels like a lot of things you know there have been some terrible setbacks let's call them setbacks hmm. i think the the plague probably set us back i i've I'm on record saying World War One really set us back, yeah, quite a bit. Or those years, 1915 to 1920. But yeah, nothing that would suggest that we would ever wake up one day and there would be no electricity. Although it's a reoccurring theme in all of our popular media, and we talk about it a lot, don't we? I, we talk I think about, it, we've run lot. out of things to be afraid of, honestly. Interesting. Go you know on. what I'm saying? Like, like a lot of the things that used to plague and and terrify humanity, most Let's, of those are gone now. We don't have to worry about a. Most people don't have to worry about a bear eating them or, you know, right. being preyed upon by a beast. 
right? You know, we have a limited number of natural disasters that cannot be predicted and planned for or adjusted around. Like we had the snow apocalypse here, but you know, how many people were really, really, really miserable? A lot. How many people perished? Some did. Some did. Okay. But if you look at the population, the, n- the number of people that were affected by that compared to the number who may be perished in it, that's a relatively small number. It doesn't make it any better that people still lost their lives. There were some people who died. But for as, as big of a problem as it was and as many millions and millions of people who were affected, we, we made out okay as a, as a place, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I think the things that people worry about now, not even hurricanes, because you know a hurricanes, you might not know exactly where it's going to make landfall, but you know that it's on its way and you've got time to get out of there. There's no, there's not a situation now where a hurricane can catch you by surprise and kill you. That doesn't happen anymore. Mm-hmm. There are very few places that, that um, do have to worry about things like earthquakes, tornadoes, you know, things like that. Those are, are real concerns. Mm-hmm. But again, um, maybe with the exception of a big, a big earthquake, tornadoes and things like that are very localized. They're very small. They might destroy part of a small town or, or something like that, which is horrible when it happens. But it's not like millions of people are killed or displaced or something. So the only things that we have to worry about now are these kind of global apocalyptic events, you know, that, that affect millions of people and that seem, are seem like I'm very sure that if our scientists knew that a giant meteor or something was headed toward us, that they would try to keep it quiet as long as possible. They would not tell us about it. Oh, I didn't realize that your conspiratorial tendencies extended to uh, your disaster realm in the sense that you're preparing for a disaster that you're also being lied to about. I didn't say that it's required, but if you really think about it, if you really yeah. think about it, would it be in as a, as a populace, as a population, as a people? Yeah. Would it? Would we really? Would it do any good to tell people that there was a meteor coming? Well, but but the I'm talking I'm talking global apocalyptic event. Sure, but the the assumption there is that scientists mm-hmm. a are a, are a unified group, mm-hmm. and b are colluding with enough other people that there would be an awareness of an impending disaster and then a collective, you know, that there's some kind of, uh, there's some kind of group in charge of scientists that would, that would say, let's keep this quiet from the people to protect them from themselves. I don't, I think that scientists are basically like, like uh, hyperactive cats. Mm Mm-hmm. No one can tell them what to do. They don't even communicate with each other most of the time. The first person to just to to see a meteor would immediately start running down the hall with a clipboard, pounding on people's doors, going, "My God, men, there's a comet!" And then it would yeah, be. I think it might be right. It'd be in the newspapers. There's no. There's no. Um, there's no central authority. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And uh, the and that would be necessary for there to be, for something to be kept quiet. That's you know that's my principle about about uh, conspiracy. Is you have to, there has to be some uh, some line, but a hard line between the people that know and the people that don't, 
And if you can't see that line, it's probably not there, right? Like at mission control, if the moon landing was fake, some of the people at mission control knew, but some of the people at mission control had to not know. Mm -hmm. There's not that many people in mission control. It's a, it's a small enough room. You know, you could throw a paper airplane from one side to the other. You've seen the photographs of it. Yeah. Now, some of those people knew and some didn't if, if the moon landing was faked. But you can't, you can't look at the room and see who they are. There's not some people at the back of the room that knew and some people at the front that didn't. And so if there's no, like, way to discern where, the, where, the, uh, where that line is, then it probably doesn't exist. Right. Because you can't have people sitting next to each other at two different desks and one knows that it's a completely faked moon landing and one is looking at their their instruments and going, everything looks great. Mm-hmm. And they're like peers. That's not going to work. That can, That's not possible. And I don't think everybody in there was read in to the fact that the whole thing was being directed by Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem reasonable, right? There are some people wandering around that that, that aren't privy to that. So unless Stanley Kubrick, in addition to faking the moon landing, also was able to fake the uh, signal to all of those different instruments and well enough to fool the fact that most of those people sitting there had actually developed the instrumentation. They weren't just some, you know, some summer hires. These were the people that were capable of building and rebuilding the actual equipment themselves. You'd have to really have some good technology to fool them looking at the instruments that they know that intimately. Yeah, sure. Now, I didn't want to get into the whole moon landing thing with you. Because I no, I didn't. I did did not. Today, I did not walk in the door saying, you know what? I'm going to bring up the moon landing to Dan Uh and just get. Get that ball rolling. I mean, I'm prepared to discuss it if you know, <laughs> I know. if you'd enjoy that. I know you are. I'm very do you have it. do you have a theory that contradicts the conventional wisdom on the moon landing? I mean I know it's a can of worms. I had, you know, I actually ordered from Amazon a whole case of worms <laughs> and I've got a I do have a can of it here if you want me to open you, it up. Uh, yeah, open it up a little bit. Open, just crack mm-hmm. it, crack it. Just um, let some air into the can of worms. My theory is, so if you look back at this time politically, there very much the space race was very, very real. We as a nation were humiliated by, uh, by Russia, who, uh, the Soviet Union, who was able to get a human in orbit. And mm. we had to top that. We had to be successful to win this. We had to. There was no choice. We had to get people on the moon before the Russians did it. We yeah. had to make this happen under any circumstances or all circumstances. And we could not afford another humiliation. We could not right. afford another humiliation. No more humiliations. That was our stated yes. policy. We cannot abide another toe. We can't afford it. We, we've checked our bank accounts. There is no, we have no humiliation money left in the middle. That's right. So we had to be successful no mm-hmm. matter what. And mm-hmm. I believe that as a, as a fallback, a contingency plan, 
whatever term you want to use <laughs> that we were, we were, listen, John, we're going to make it to the moon. Yeah. yeah we're yeah. going to make it to the moon. We're going to have some guys on the moon and it's going to go fine. <laughs> and so they're, they're training for it. Right. And they're thinking about all this as they're training for it. They got the real astronauts there. They're training them. They're saying, you know what though? What if something happens? What if something goes wrong? Mm. What if something we, we lose the guys, we lose the guys, we lose them. We, it crashes. The technology doesn't work. They get stranded. There's a million things that could have gone wrong. They right. could not allow any of those things to happen. So what did they do? They, they created some footage that showed us what a successful moon mission would be like from start to finish. They said, we've got mm -hmm. this. We're going to do this. We're still doing the real thing. We're really still yep. going to the moon, but yep. you know what? The stuff that's going to happen up there, we're just going to have a few films of it here so that we can show these to the people. And also, maybe we can't really get like live visual images from the moon as good as we think. Or what if that goes wrong? What if they're on the moon and it's great? Hmm. We can't show it to the people. We want oh. the people to watch what's going on on the moon. Right, right. But, some, you know, the camera didn't work. The radio thing didn't work. Whatever. Sure. So they they... They did what they needed to do to recreate as accurately as they believe possible the experience of the moon landing. And mm. I, I believe that what, what we as the American people and the world were shown mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. either a combination of real footage, because I very much believe that we did moon, land on the moon. I very mm -hmm. much believe that mm -hmm. uh, multiple times. Or mm. it, it's either a combination of real footage and this created footage or all the created footage for the first mission. Subsequent missions, I feel like they got it under wrap. They knew what to do. But for that hmm. first mission, I'm not positive that a lot of the media that came back from the moon was legit the stuff that happened on the moon when hmm. it was happening. That's, hmm. That is a, a theory, but I'm not convinced of that. I am pretty convinced, though, that we did make it to the moon I, I take pride in the fact that we made to the moon as a nation and, um, you know, and I believe the moon is real. For example, there's people uh, okay, that don't okay, believe good, it's good. real. Some um, sure. I believe that. Sure. I hope and we're I, not comparing I, your beliefs to theirs. And I think that we're, we made it to the moon and all of that, but I think some or all of what we were shown maybe wasn't real. Maybe huh. it happened here. Maybe it happened in, you know, Arizona, like we were just talking about, who knows? Who knows? But why, why, why take that risk? Why take that risk? Especially if we were actually really doing it. If we were actually really going to the moon anyway, what's the difference? You see some guys running around, you slow the camera down. It looks like they're in zero G or whatever the G is on, a, on the moon. It's close enough. We did it. Hmm. This is the same thing. Hmm. Like if you prepared a meal, if you, if you had a date and you went to the grocery store and you bought the food and you made like an amazing meal, but you burnt the Brussels sprouts, right? And you just ran to the Whole Foods and got some of their Brussels sprouts and brought them. Like, is it a big, is it a big deal? Is anyone going to care? The Brussels sprouts are there and they're good. You made the rest of it. I think that's what we were dealing with here. Wow. Well, Dan, what do you, you really, can you get on board with that? You really came through. I was hoping that you had a, that you had something kooky to say on the topic and you did. And I'm, I'm proud of you. Thank okay. you. Okay. No, I can't get behind that. No, I think that no, I think the American story is one of uh, of putting our public failures right out there on the table, 
all of our, you know, one of the reasons that we, that we felt like our humiliation was so unbearable and that this was that, that we had to succeed was that all of the, all of the launch pad fires and all of the guys crashing their jets in the desert. And we, you know, all of that was front page news. It was the Russians that were concealing all of the, we still don't know how many cosmonauts, um, well, how many cosmonauts there are still floating around? Yeah. Well, there uh, could the, be dozens. It's impossible. Floating around the earth. Yeah. They're frozen bodies, just like Jack Nicholson in the shining. Yeah. Like a Mount Everest. Except, they're there forever yeah, in a little, in a little capsule. Uh, no, no, no. We were, we were always upfront about it and that was what made the stakes so high. And that's why Richard Nixon had that letter all written to say like, we lost our brave souls or whatever it was that he was, that John, he was going to say. I don't think he would have known. See now that's wonderful. It gets deep. I mean, it, you got to go really beautiful. deep with this. It's really beautiful. I love that. I love it. I'm not saying I, I believe it, that I'm saying it's a, it's a theory. Yeah. It's a, no, theory. I don't. Uh, I don't believe in those theories. I believe that, that it is what it seems that we, that we launched the capsule if we dared and mm-hmm. we and they flew through space and they did the whole thing. And there was that whole business about running out of fuel, all that stuff. I'm I just hope 100% you're right. I, behind it. I yeah. want that to be, I very much want that to be the truth. I want that. I want to believe that everything that we were shown is exactly what happened. That's, yeah. that's my belief. And I think that's one of the things that sets me apart from a lot of the other sort of conspiracy theorists is that uh, many, most of them, I don't know, some, a lot, yeah. right. Really want the conspiracy theory to be true. They want to get, they want that. And I they don't do. like, I want, I want everything that we've ever been told to be true. Even if it's not great, I want to know that, our government and our media and everybody has all along been honest with us. That would make me really, really happy, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm a dupe, Dan. Maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm one of these asshats who just reads the, reads the uh, newspaper and goes, Hmm, seems, seems reasonable. But you know, the United States has, never uh shied away from being very humiliated mm-hmm. in the in the world like we we take our lumps we look uh we look pretty bad and uh and keep on plodding along i mean looking looking back there are an awful lot of um there are an awful lot of situations where we could have maybe done a better job of covering up some of our some of our disastrous foibles mm mm-hmm. mhm and you know, and we don't we don't look at them now and think, well, there's a missed opportunity to conceal your um, your like dumb proxy war in in Central America. Uh, and I think, but I but but I think if we were going to go to the trouble to um, to have a separate fake moon landing uh, in the can just in case, we probably also would have been a little bit better at not getting our signals intercepted, not, um, not just having like randos reveal our secret El Salvadorian wars to the mm-hmm. newspapers, mm-hmm. you know, that type of thing. Like we would have had a little bit better control over Noriega's banking. There's all this stuff that seems like if we had the power to do these big things, we also would have employed it 
to protect ourselves from kind of the stupid things. Like how do you get, you know, how do you get uh, just some like local yokels down in Colombia that end up controlling, essentially controlling the economies of, of, uh, well, all of Central America by selling cocaine on the streets of Miami through this network of little planes and like all that, all that hokey, jokey drug stuff in the 70s and 80s uh, where we've got Coast Guard cutters running around out there trying to intercept these little speedboats that have bales of cocaine tied to the back. And I mean, it was just such a, it's so goofy and yet so globally disastrous. And mm-hmm. we end up, we end up in that drug trade in order to pay for militias to overthrow leftist governments. It just feels like if we had, if we had the power to do anything real and on a big scale and, and just to protect ourselves from embarrassment, we wouldn't have spent the last 40, 50 years with egg constantly on our faces, big, dumb, disorganized bunch of goofballs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The United States. I noticed that the governor of Texas was suing the Biden administration because the Biden administration stopped building the wall and the governor of Texas cannot abide it. He says it's illegal to stop building the wall because it's, it was the law and it feels like, wow, yes, absolutely. (laughs) What a, what a wonderful collection of like gerbils on LSD. The United States is. It's just like if you took 400 gerbils and you put varying degrees of LSD in their water and then you put them to work, not just on a maze, but put them to work in a maze with a set of tinker toys mm. and ask them to build a windmill. Right. That's what, that's what it feels like the United States has been for a, a lot longer than I would have admitted. You're right. And by the way, it was a land commissioner. Uh, oh, oh, it wasn't so, the governor of Texas? No. Uh, and wait a the, minute isn't the governor of texas just a land commissioner i mean in a way yes I, I believe you're right but um the lawsuit was saying that biden had no legal rights to to halt construction of the wall that's on the texas mexico border because congress had already said you can have the money they'd already set the money aside they'd already approved it they'd already said yes it's good and right. so um so that that gave Biden no he had no rights to cancel it because it's already happened. But the guy who's doing it is George P. Bush. Oh, George P. Bush. George P. Bush. Yes. And um, I wonder if he has any political ambitions. I, I mean, is, this def- just, is he just trying to get his name in the I newspaper? I think so. Um, um, but he here's the quote that I was just it's funny because I was just reading this. Um. The issue here is simple. No man is above the law, and that includes President Biden. That's the quote. Yes. Um, no man is above the law. Now, now, meanwhile, our governor, Greg Abbott, uh, is doing his own thing. Um, he is trying to build a wall using mm-hmm. $250 million of Texas money and private donations to, oh, to do it. So these are two... <laughs> Different things that are going on at the same time here. Yeah, I must have conflated that. Yeah, I can see why because it's um, 
it, it's basically the same thing, but it's two things happening at once. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's weird because like on the one hand, I get why the wall is like the, the most wrong thing for America to do. And then on the other hand, I can understand like the guys, like the ranchers and the other people who live near the border who are having people come illegally onto like their private land, their private property that they can't possibly police because they're like one person on like 300 acres or something. Like I feel for them too, but that's not the right way to address the issue, I think. And I don't know what, and you can't just say to us, we'll just move then. You can't do that. But what do you do? What do you do for the people who are like legitimately concerned that people are, are like, camping out on their property that they don't want there. What do they do? I don't know. I don't know. It seems like all, if you took all of the ranchers mm-hmm. from, um, you know, from Calexico all the way over to the Gulf of Mexico, every single landowner from the, the of the entire area, right? And mm-hmm. you put them all in a high school gymnasium I don't think it would fill the gymnasium. No, there would still be room for a basketball game. <laughs> yeah, probably right? because they don't, th- these aren't three hundred acre ranches. These people own three million acres of of chaparral. There's nothing there. No, it's one of these American things where it's like I own a million acres. It's like a million acres of what? A million acres of Gila monsters? I mean, you know, the cattle go through there once a year type of thing. Mm-hmm. If that, mm-hmm. I don't know what they're raising down there. They're raising dust devils. And so this crowd who would fit inside of a inside of a Mercedes Sprinter are like we are we have all this compassion for the people coming over the border and got no water and we've got to build a 700 billion dollar wall to keep the 25 people I see a year. It's like come on. Oh, that's just as much security theater as them making me, making me take my shoes off at TSA. Mm. It's all baloney. It's all baloney. People, they're so full of baloney. Everybody's so full of baloney. I was at, my daughter had a swim meet mm-hmm. this, um, this past, well, what, when was it? Yesterday. Mm-hmm. And she's been doing swimming this summer and it's, um. Uh, it's been great. It's been great for her. It's been great for the family. It's like her first exposure to really any competition hmm. at all. Like she's, she's a modern child. She's raised in this modern world where unlike the world that I grew up in, where parents where adults were constantly pitting their children against one another uh, as sort of, uh, you know, like little proxy wars against one another. Like, Hey, my kid is better at this than, you know, like the parents used to stand on the sidelines and be like, Get him on! yeah, sure. You know, it was like a, it was a, um, it was a much more competitive world. By the time I was 10 years old, I had competed against other kids, mm-hmm. uh, so much. And I was not a com- competitive in that way. Uh, but my daughter at 10 and a half had never been, had never been in competition, not, not physical competition mm-hmm. nor academic competition because everything is geared to make them all Equal, yeah. All equal. Everyone gets a trophy just for showing up. Everyone wins. The losing team is also the winning team because they tried. But you know, she like the 
What's crazy about the testing that they do is that the tests are geared there because it's all on computers. Yeah. The tests are geared to find the child's limits. So if you get a question right, the next question is harder. Mm. And if you get a question wrong, then the next question is easier. And so what the test is trying to do, and I understand the science of it, the test is trying to figure out like, all right, well, we're going to keep giving this kid harder questions until we figure out where they are. And if, you know, if a kid is in fourth grade and they can do sixth grade math, um, well, let's figure that out. And if a kid's in fourth grade and they can only do second grade math, we'll figure that out by having this computer calibrated test. Everything is better with computers. But what her experience, her personal experience of taking tests is that, you know, when I would take a test, when I was in fifth grade, and I knew all the answers, mm-hmm. and I got done before all the other kids. I put my pencil down, and I was like, huh, all right, great. And I felt good. I felt like I had aced the test. Mm-hmm. And then when the, when the results came back, and it said, your child is, has aced the test, mm-hmm. then we all were like, hmm, yep, confirmed. But these days, no kid gets to ace the test because the test just keeps getting harder. Her personal experience of it is she comes home and goes, well, that test was, you know, I'm not sure I did very well. And then the results come back and she, you know, she did great. It's just that they keep throwing harder questions at her. And I I have asked a couple of educators about this. Like, is there no, I mean, what, what the test seems designed to do is make every kid get to the end of the test unsure how they did. And un, you know, like with no feeling of confidence, you know, there's always going to be, cause she would come home and say, there were questions on that test of thing about things I'd never even heard of. And if you were constantly given tests where there were questions that were like, uh, you know, you were answering questions and you felt confident and then you got to this stuff where you'd not been taught those things, you would feel kind of gaslit right or undermined or like what where was i you know it's a panicky feeling but that's the way that the world works but so we put her in this swim club and she was apprehensive about competing she didn't want to go to the swim meet and we said well just let's just go you know if you don't like it we don't have to do it if you don't want to do it we you know we never have to do it again right we got to the swim meet she was you know nervous I was like, well, just give it, you know, do an event. You know, you're signed up for four events. Do an event. If you don't like it, we can, you know, we never have to come to a swimming pool again. Well, she did the event and she won. Mm. And it was like you, it was like you gave speed to a, to a capuchin monkey. All of a sudden she was like, get me in the water. What are you doing? Get out of my way. And she's been very excited about it. Very successful at it. Although still, you know, not like every time there's a new challenge, like, well, you know, this now we're, now we're going to the big meet with the big team and they're not going to be so easy to beat. They're going to kick your butt. And she's not so sure about that. She doesn't like having her butt kicked. It's a lot better to get first place. And she's had her butt kicked a couple of times, but she's, she keeps going after it. But a couple of days ago, the swim club, uh, they sent out an email and they said, 
we need volunteers. We need somebody to do the computers and we need someone to announce the meet. Hmm. And so my daughter's mother, who is a computer person said, well, I'll do the computers. And then she signed me up to announce the meet. Told me after the fact, oh, by the way, I signed you up to, they need an announcer. And I was like, hey, you know, I get paid a lot of money to do that stuff. I'm not just here to give it away free to some dumb swim team. And she was like, come on, get over yourself. Mm -hmm. And she was right. So I show up and I'm like, all right, you know, tell me what to do. I'm, I'm here. I'm a, I'm a gentle soul. I've got no, I don't, I didn't show up with my own microphone. You know, Dan, I'm just here to help. And they said, well, the normal guy who normally announces the meet, um, who's a DJ, mm. he's, he, he's an on-air personality, not a DJ. He's an on-air personality at, at uh, KJR, which is the talk radio station here where people do, where they talk about sports. And so he's an on-air person at, at KJR. Uh, KJR was always like AM... AM singles in the seventies, you know, that was where you heard nights in white satin or whatever. Oh. <laughs> KJR Seattle chatting 95.7. And now it's nine fifty AM all sports. Hmm. So they're like this guy, he's, you know, he's a dad here. He does the announcing, but he's, but his work schedule changed. He used to be in mornings. Now he's in afternoons. He can't be here until halfway through the meet. And so all we need you to do is announce the first half of the meet and then he's going to come and, 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 you know, uh, take over. And I was like, oh, oh, okay, well, sure. I mean, uh, that's fine. Tell me what you, tell me what to do. And they're like, well, here's the, here's what you do. You read this, but there's a kind of patter to it. You know, there's a, there's a style. There are these little, these little, um, sort of habits, their whistles get blown, uh, the, you introduce the thing and then you, then you say, um, Mr. Starter. And then the starter is a different person who blows the whistle and hits the bomb button and they start swimming all this little, it's a little ritual. And so, uh, so I, you know, I didn't know how, how it worked, but I kind of got into it. The starter was a very, uh, He'd been doing it for a long time, local dad. By long time, I mean, you know, five or six years. Not a very friendly person. Hmm. I would say not very helpful either. Not friendly, not helpful. He was very dubious of me. And I'm like, look, I didn't apply for this job. Right. They needed somebody and, and I was volunteered for it. Can you, you know, give me some pointers, I said. He's just not very... He wasn't very into it. And I announced it, you know, and I had a good time. It was fun announcing it. Sort of fun. At one point, though, I made an error. Oh. Because, you know, again, there's a pattern. And I said, you know, okay, girls, well, you know, um, yeah, this is the, the girls eight and under, 25-meter freestyle. All right, ladies, take your marks. And what I should say, what I should have said is like, you know, anything but take your marks because take your marks is actually something that the starter says right before hitting the bomb. Oh. And so I say, you know, ladies, take your marks, meaning 
get up on the whatever starting blocks or whatever. I don't know. And then the starter guy who uh, had a very loud coach's whistle that he blew right in my ear like 16 times a minute. Um, He blows this whistle because that is the thing that happens before he, he blows a whistle. Then he says, take your marks. And then he hits the little bomb. But I said, okay, ladies, you know, take your marks. And then he goes, tweet. And the little girls all jump in the water and start swimming. And everybody at the pool is like, what happened? What are they doing? What's going on? And then the starter said, you said, take your marks. And I was like, oh, oh, did I, is that wrong? And he was like, don't say take your marks. And so the girls are swimming and everybody's standing on the side of the pool, like go back, go back, stop. And finally they wave them all down and, uh, and you know, a couple of them swim all the way to the end before somebody, you know, somebody grabs them and says, stop. And so that we have to redo that, we have to redo it. And, uh, and this is, you know, this is, this is tough on the little girls. They have to swim the race again. Sure. And so I, you know, I mea culpa to the, to the swim meet. I say, that was, you know, that was the announcer's error. I'm very sorry about that. We're going to, we're going to have to rerun that race. Sorry, ladies. Uh, that's just a. Chalk it up to new dad doesn't know the job here. And, um, my experience, Dan of the, of the suburbs, you know, it's been, it's been somewhat checkered and I'm gradually, um, I'm gradually experiencing more and more alienation. Hmm from the other suburbanites Mm. in general, I find them very humorless. Uh, the particular neighborhood I live in, although I think on the surface affluent, it is not, uh, it is not creative. The neighborhood is not full of creative people. It's full of people who have a different kind of experience of the world an awful lot of people with baseball hats that have sunglasses on top of the baseball hat. Do you know what I mean? You yes. see this in Texas yes, I, every I've day. I've seen that. Yes. If you walked outside right now, I bet you, you could see someone with sunglasses on top of their baseball hat, uh, without even having to turn your head. Oh, I'm sure of it. And I know there are people listening to the program who either have sunglasses on top of their baseball hat right now, or are looking at their sunglasses as I say this and thinking, wait a minute, I was about to put these on top of my baseball hat. Mm. What is he talking about? Why is that a problem? Mm -hmm. Because I'm always on this show saying something simple as cargo shorts are a problem and they're not. And a lot of people listening are probably like, whatever he doesn't He's just a goofball and I'm going to wear cargo shorts because they're whatever they are. Because I keep my hankies in them. I hope no one ever, you know, reevaluates their life as a result of me saying these things. I hope that if you want to wear car- cargo shirts, you do. I also hope nobody ever says, I'm not listening to Roadwork anymore because they denigrate the great cargo short. But I am going to say right now, just, just as a, it's, it's almost going to be a shibboleth for listeners of Roadwork 
if you could just not put your sunglasses on top of your baseball hat. Also, don't put them on the back of your head backwards. Mm. Don't do those two things. Just don't do them. I'm not going to explain why. I don't want to have to explain why. I just, I'm, I'm begging you as the audience, uh, take your sunglasses off and, you know, fold them, tuck them in your front pocket, maybe tuck them in the neck of your shirt. That's a, that's a good way. Just don't put them, especially if they're that kind of wraparound sunglasses that you see. They're so popular now. Oh yeah. Wraparound plasticky sunglasses on top of your baseball hat. It's just not, I'm just I'm just asking you to do it. Have faith, have faith. When I say this, I'm doing it for you. I'm asking you to do this for you, not for me. Although it does help me too, because I don't have to look at it. But I'm, uh, I make this mistake. I look around the pool and I think in a world of people that, uh, that I would consider my peers that I would think of as being people I would want to emulate that I would think of as my community. Mm-hmm. I would look across a giant swimming pool of parents and kids and there would be some sympathy for a brand new announcer who had made this small error. You would think. And then there would be other communities where there would be you know, this kind of the, the opposing team in the bad news bears type situation where everybody is so cranked up about the rules and the league and the competitiveness that there would be a lack of sympathy, like a, like a kind of a frustration and an anger at who is this dope, this, this, uh, this amateur, this ding dong who's walked in here to our, to this hall of champions. And there wasn't really that either. What there was, was just a complete, uh, looks of complete lack of comprehension. Um, you know, and I'm like, you know, oh, that was on me. And it just seemed like, um, that I was up there going, Oh, French, 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 you know, like, no, there was no feeling of camaraderie. And then the guy from KJR walks up <laughs> And he, who was the guy on Mad Men? Not the, not John Hamm, but the other guy, the silver-haired guy. Oh, um, oh man, yes, I know, I know who you mean. You got this. The one in the three-piece suits. Yes, uh, Roger. 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 So the guy from KJR, I swear, he looks exactly like Roger. Same exact silver hair, very similar face. You know, handsome in a kind of in a kind of regular Joe sort of way, but the silver hair really puts it over the top. Yeah. Except instead of wearing a, a tailored three piece silk suit, he's wearing a university of Washington Huskies baseball hat, a university of Washington Huskies t-shirt. I think maybe under armor brand, a university of Washington Huskies pair of athletic shorts and some athletic shoes that if they aren't University of Washington Huskies branded, I would be surprised. He may have taken a Sharpie and written U-Dub on the side. And so, although he looks like Roger from Mad Men, he also looks like a five-year-old because he's dressed like a Mm five-year-old. 
And he comes over and the, the, the timer guy, the starter guy says, Oh my God, you're just in time. Thank God. And the guy, uh, takes the microphone from me without really saying anything. Not like, thanks, or I got this even. Mm. He's not, he doesn't push me out of the way, but he takes over and he's got a sports radio patter. He's like, next up. And he, you know, he knows what he's doing. He's, this is the thing he's done for many years. And so I kind of, went from being the announcer of the swim meet to being a civilian again, nobody. Mm -hmm. And I walked around the, you know, I went then to cheer on my daughter and walked around the meet. And I come from a culture where, um, I think a culture of acknowledgement, you know, the, it's not a, everybody gets a medal, but when somebody has been doing a thing, uh, and then they walk through the room. You go, "Hey, good job!" Or you, you you acknowledge that there was a that they were doing a thing earlier, and now they're they've transitioned to not doing that thing. There's a there's a um, you walk through a crowd, and there's an acknowledgement of your presence, whether or not you were doing a thing. If you see somebody that was standing over there, and now they're over here, you go, "Oh, hello!" You know, there's just a uh, I don't know how to I don't know how to describe it other than to contrast it against this experience, mm -hmm. which is here is this group of parents. All of our kids are in the swimming pool with one another, kind of swimming and racing and and you know it's in an intimate environment. They're all in the same pool of water, and the kids all get along. I never saw a single dispute from a kid. You know, the kids are just like we. They're they're they aren't even old enough really to feel competitive in a. They're not angry about it, right? They're not, when they lose, they're not that sad. And when they win, they're not that happy. They're just like, wow, mm -hmm. uh, they want to get right. They, There's they almost no is, differentiation between winning and losing. No, I mean, the, they're going to get a piece of pizza at the end anyway. Like nobody says, there is no difference. I mean, I guess you get a ribbon three days later. But in walking around this pool, no one made eye contact with me. No one spoke a word to me. And again, I, uh, I, it's not that I was looking for anything. It's just that I noticed there wasn't anything. And that feeling of estrangement and of uh, just being in a completely alien culture and looking around and going, now what is it? What is it? How is it different here? Then in a situation where I would walk around this pool and feel like a feel comfortable here, like I belonged here. Um, because there are no friendly nods. There are no, there's no eye contact of any kind. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the visual clues is a lot of sunglasses on top of baseball hats. Um, also, uh, all the men are dressed the same. Oh, this was another crazy thing. The theme of the swim meet, the other two swim meets I'd been to did not have themes, but this theme, this one was themed and it was aloha. 
was the theme. <laughs> and I- it was on all the. <laughs> It was on all the invitations, wow. yeah. on the posters on the street, yeah. the streamers. It was like, Aloha, it's the Aloha meet. <laughs> Come on, everybody, Aloha meet. And every single one of these dads was wearing the same sort of sport cut, gray colored under armor jogging underwear, baseball hat, sunglasses, some kind of shorts that look like underpants mm-hmm. not a one of them owns a it's not you don't even have to have a hawaiian shirt a colorful shirt a shirt with a collar a short sleeve shirt with a collar that is a color other than gray no no at the whole pool they're the only people that wore of course i was like decked out in my finest vintage hawaiian shirt but the only people that wore anything vaguely Aloha, there were a few moms that had sort of Hawaiian sarongs. And then someone was handing out those plastic lays. Oh, the yeah. Little, the necklaces made out of yeah. plastic. Yeah, the plastic and, flowers. Yeah, so the kids were running around with these plastic lays. And they weren't even like plastic hibiscus flowers. They were just like the sort of, it's the Mardi Gras bead of Aloha cheapest flower cheapest plastic lay you can make <laughs> so there were kids running around with like these little necklaces on but the lack of you know the, the the fact that there wasn't another dad in the whole of the swim meet who had tried even a scintilla to be anything other than whatever this is whatever this the 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 signaling that they're doing to one another um, because of course it's a social environment, right? The dads are signaling to one another. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't know whether it is that some of these wraparound sunglasses are more expensive than others. I don't know whether what they're signaling to one another is, uh, is not status is anti-status. I mean, they're, the looking at the trucks in the parking lot, there's a ton of status being displayed, but it's all in the form of truck packages. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't understand the culture at all, and I'm so outside of it. And so there, there, there's no one that I can look at and exchange a knowing glance. And it's very, it's very hard for me to. Because it's been so long since I was in a room where, or in a space where there were over a hundred people and I couldn't find a simpatico soul, mm-hmm. let alone 12 minutes from downtown Seattle. Um, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm weirdly unmoored by this. At the other swim meets I went to, which were in two other neighborhoods in Seattle, there were, there were like-minded souls. I saw them, you know, I'm walking around the pool and there's a guy over there and I'm like, Oh, Hey, there, there's a guy. And he made eye contact with with me and, you know, and tipped his hat or just was like, hello, you know, hello there. I saw you and you saw me and wave of a hand, simple, simple stuff. 
And I'm not sure whether the dads out here are afraid that they, that, that I'm a homosexual because I wear pink shirts or something. Mm-hmm. I do wear pink shirts and I do cut my own hair. That sends a, uh, that sends a complicated series of messages. It does. Yeah. I just, uh, do you have any insight into what I'm talking about in your, in your town, in your neighborhood, in the places that you go in your children's school where your children play with their toys, Mm -hmm. Dan, do you feel that you have a simpatico, a feeling of belonging to a community or at least the ability to look at someone not across a crowded dance floor, but just in, in shared space and have the, the social grace, a, a nod, uh, you know, the briefest eye contact. It, it, does that exist in your world? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think it does here in Austin. It's certainly parts of Austin, but then, you know, there's, there's so many new people here now also. So it, it, it's kind of weird. Like the Austin that we have now is not like it was five, four or five years ago, but yeah, I still think so. I think there's a, there's kind of a vibe. There's a buzz. There's a thing that, um, that happens here mm-hmm. where I don't feel completely alien. Like I did in, in Florida, for example. Mm-hmm. And I think I fit more here than I would if I went, tried to go back to Philadelphia or something. I don't think that I, I don't think that I, that anymore that I have that kind of the thing that you're describing. I used to always feel that anytime I would go back to a city, I'd visit a city for work or I'd visit for, you know, a trip or friends or something. And I'd be like, yeah, I kind of should be in something like this. In a city. In a city, you know, and I don't feel that anymore. Like I don't. And I feel like the vibe here, even though it's, there's a lot of new people and it's changing. I feel like it's still, it's still a good thing. Anytime I hear someone say, you know, like I was talking to somebody last, well, no, earlier in the week and they're like, Oh, you know, I've been in Austin a while. This doesn't feel like my Austin anymore. I don't think I'm going to stay. It doesn't feel like my Austin. And I said, Oh, that's too bad. Like how long have you been here? And Oh, so I've been here six years and it's just, it's just not the same. I'm like, well, I've been here 10 years and it, it still does feel the same to me. And I don't think 10 years is really that long to have been here. I know people who were born here. I know people who have you know, really, really invested themselves in this place. And I don't know. I don't like hearing that. I don't feel like a, a place can change just because there's some new people, but I know what you're talking about. And I feel, well, are you saying that you don't feel that at all anymore in Seattle, that you're not connected to Seattle the way that, that you used to be? No, uh, no, it's nothing to do with Seattle. I'm in, I'm in a suburb Mm -hmm. that has a different, a different vibe from other suburbs. I was talking to my mom about it. Oh, even within the context of, of Seattle suburb, it's, it's different. That's the thing. I get it. If I had moved to Bellevue, Washington, mm-hmm. across the lake, there would be affluent people there, and they would be uh, that kind of brittle snob. Yes. 
but they would be in Bellevue. The people would be, um, would be beautiful, mm-hmm. right? They would be very beautiful. Yeah. And they would be that kind of forced smile, beautiful, rich people. I know about the people in Bellevue. The people down here are not beautiful. If I were in North Seattle, if I were in Edmonds, the, you know, the suburb would have a different quality. There'd be a lot of um, den mothers and um, PTA busybodies. You know, like, like what I guess I didn't know as uh, was that the the suburbs ringing Seattle had very different cultures ah. because I don't think of a suburb as having a culture other than just like general suburban culture. What is, what is outside of the city? I don't know. Macaroni and cheese. <laughs> uh, everybody's driving a, some kind of truck. I don't know. I didn't know. And now I'm realizing, oh, I'm in a suburb that has its own culture and it's more alien to me than just suburban culture. Right. Because there are suburbs, I know there are suburbs where people greet one another at a swim meet. Sure. Yes. At a suburb when somebody who has announced the first half of a swim meet stops announcing it and walks around the pool that someone would go, Hey, good job. Even that, even in a sporty way, Hey, good job. (laughs) Sport, sport guy voice, Mm -hmm. (laughs) let alone somebody going like, Hey, good job. That was really, thanks for doing that. Yeah. Uh, none of the organizers, none of the people that asked me, uh, or that, that, you know, that while I was doing it, um, were all standing around me doing other things, shuffling papers and waving flags and blowing whistles. None of them ever said, Thanks for doing that. Hey, good job. Yeah, I'm looking for an attaboy. You know I am, Dan, all yeah, the time looking yeah, for an attaboy. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want a ribbon. Nobody had to give me a – they didn't have to make me a Kentucky colonel. They just – I. but I didn't – there wasn't a living soul. And what's crazy is because my daughter is is good at swimming, and this is a thing that we didn't ha- – we didn't really – she likes to swim. Yeah. But we had no idea that she would join the swim team – most of the kids on the swim team have been swimming for many years. A lot of them swimming together for many years. She's a new kid. She walked in and she's, you know, she's getting second place in a lot of these big meets. And the girl that's getting first place is like this, just gifted swimmer. The The first place swimmer in most of these events is 20 seconds mm-hmm. ahead of my daughter. And then my daughter is, four seconds ahead of third place and then third place, fourth place, fifth place are all within two seconds of each other. Oh man. That's so, you know, there's, yeah, there's like five girls who are all swimming basically at the, at the same level. And, and my kid is, is right at the top of that. And then there's this girl that should, that's going on her way to the Olympics. Um, but what I, what I, what's astonishes me is that while my daughter is swimming, there are dads and mom's on the side of the pool yelling her name. Mm. 
like cheering her on because she's, you know, we're swimming against other swim teams. And so she's beating whoever the visiting team is. And they're like, you know, go John's daughter. Come on. You know, screaming in that, in that excited parent voice. Yeah. A thing that I don't actually do. Like I don't stand on the side of the pool and scream her name. Cause first of all, she's in a pool. She can't hear it. All she hears is. <laughs> But the fact that this cr- this crew knows my daughter's name yeah. and feels like empowered to to scream it at her as she's swimming, but uh, they don't they don't and they know I'm her dad because when she gets out of the pool she comes over to me where I'm standing with a towel and I go good job and she goes thanks but no no one. You know, my inclination is to go over and say like, hey, your kid, you know, good job. You know, yeah. hey, what's your name? Yeah. But they don't do that there. That's what you're saying. They don't do that. Well, not only that, but they don't allow it. Like mm. I try to make eye contact because, of course, that's what I do, right? I'm a flirtatious person. I want to, I'm like, hey, you know, hi. There was one mom, one mom who is a real outlier in this crowd because she is what, how am I going to, she is foxy, mm. but she's foxy in a way that is not suburban and it's not downtown either. She's Vegas foxy. Oh, I see. And so she's an outlier in the, in this community where there is no foxiness, right? Uh, no one is trying here to be foxy and she's like, uh, really overachieving hmm. in the foxiness. Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of the Northwest, right? There are very few pockets of the Northwest where Vegas foxy is what anybody is kind of rolling out. But because she was Vegas Foxy, because A, she's Foxy, and B, because she's like clearly from another orbit, um, I said, hmm, I wonder what's the story with that mom. And then I caught her looking at me, as happens, because, you know, although I'm not the, not the world's most handsome guy, I'm, I cut my own hair and I wear pink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's got to be feeling like an outlier. Yeah. She's looking around. Who else here isn't wearing under armor? Oh, that guy. So she's looking at me out of the corner of her eye. I'm looking at her. I noticed that her husband is wearing under armor and has big biceps and looks like uh, he's overcompensating or in the closet or both. And so she and I, over the course of a couple of swim meets, we're looking at each other, looking at each other. And this is, you know, this is, this is bad. This is dangerous. I'm a, da- I, 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 I'm a danger addict. This is a whole other level of danger. Mm-hmm. You know, Vegas mom, my sister notices. My sister's like, what's the deal? Mm. I'm like, it's me. It's interesting though. We're having an interest. So she, Susan and I would sit on a bench and watch the swim meet going in. And Susan would say, Vegas mom just looked over here. And I'd be like, yeah, I know. And I'm thinking, 
because Vegas mom and I start to, we haven't yet nodded at each other, but there's no. You've been, you've been identified as potentially being in the right orbit. Something else other than what everyone else is rocking, which is rocking zero, like zero heat. Right. No, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And that happens quite a lot. I'm not saying with, in the same exact circumstances, but I definitely think that if you're a little bit different, if you're not doing the like norm core thing, the other people will kind of see that a little, right? Yeah. Yeah. If there was one guy at any of these swim meets that was wearing a, like a fedora or a <laughs> pork pie hat. Yeah. Or a black flag t-shirt. Yeah. You know, like, Typically in Seattle, if a guy walks by with a black flag t-shirt, I'm not going to be like, brother. But if I'm out in whatever, Yeehaw County, where I'm living now, right. a guy in a black flag t-shirt, it would be like, hey, cousin. Absolutely. Like, what do you What do you got to say? I mean, there is one dad that has gauges in his ear, which are those yeah, large, could be something. large plugs. But gauges used to and here in, in Austin that signifies nothing that's the problem yeah 20 years ago 15 years ago even nah, 20 years ago it was it it was it indicated that you were a member of a modern primitive community that was into body modification and this symbolized a whole value system that was in line with every other little corner of alternative culture and not you know it was not ever where I was headed, mm. I was not um, going to ever get my penis pierced or my tongue split down the middle. <laughs> but I was curious, you know. I was I was modern primitive curious. But that, all of that stuff, kind of veered away from what I imagine what used to be a kind of well, it was a fringe, and also right. um, it was a it was a universe that had a that had a set of goal goals values ideas philosophies uh, gauges went into the world and became a signifier of something or other i'm not sure what uh, and i no longer i lost track of what it meant what it means last year i was at an event um, no, God, it was the year before because last year doesn't exist. But the, the singer of frightened rabbit threw himself off of a bridge and it really devastated a lot of people in the indie rock world because he was a, he was a wonderful songwriter and he connected personally with a lot of people. He did me and it's, it's, it's weird because a lot of people die in, in our line of work but this was just a kind of it just felt like one of those suicides that uh, didn't have to happen that way and and he was just going to be missed and it's it, it was it was an unusually emotional response from people uh and we had a concert for him here at KEXP where a bunch of us got together and played you know sang sang a few of his songs to kind of commemorate him. And it wasn't the only place that that happened. There were concerts for him, a lot of different places. Uh, his music was, you know, connected and he and I connected personally and communicated. And it was, um, it was a loss, 
But at the event, you know, I sang my songs and I got down off stage and I'm kind of standing around watching the other musicians. And there's a girl in the crowd who's about my age, you know, like kind of in her, in her forties. And she's, you know, a striking woman, just somebody that's like, uh, just has charisma and is beautiful and is, you know, she's not, she's neither petite nor demure, but is like, you know, kind of walks through the crowd and you're just like, my goodness, what is about to happen? You know, who is that is kind of the, the thing. And if, you know, you, this is true. You go places and there will be someone where maybe not everybody in the room is, is aware of it, but, but that kind of like, who is that? A lot going on with this person. And she had, although every other thing about her was very like sophisticated, elevated, she also had very large gauges in her ears. And she and I passed several times. And it was clear that there was a, that we were, um, that we had noticed each other and that we were continuing to notice each other. And it went from head nods to, um, you know, shy smiles to like smirks, eye, you know, eyebrow raises, this kind of, this kind of thing over the course of a night. And she reached out after the event. And I knew that that the gauges were going to be a culture clash between us, even if all other things were the same. Why? How? Why? I mean, that, that seems like it's right in your wheelhouse. Except that the that my relationship to them like was established long time ago and it and it and that relationship was that it was a different tribe. Huh. I mean it's very much a tribal uh denotation, right? It is a it is like a profound way of establishing a tribe. And I'm not somebody that is that sticks to his tribe. I, I'm not somebody that really even has a clear tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, and like cross tribal relationships and and bonding is kind of a kind of uh, like a it's maybe one of my core principles. But but somehow the. The gauges were an intrusion, a bridge too far, a, a thing that would that was going to keep me from being in the moment. And I felt bad about it. I felt shallow. I still think about it even because it was the rare occasion where I said, "I well, you know what it is." I said, "I I don't know if I can get past it." Oh, and that's a. That's a strange, that's a strange animal. And the thing about 
being Vegas Foxy is it's also a thing I'm not sure that I can get all the way past. But it was, in the context of the swim meet, something to somewhere to put my attention, right? Something else to look at besides all of these people in their sports underwear. Right. And then there was this moment we were, my daughter had just gotten done with a race and she, and the race had ended on the opposite side of the pool from where I was standing. Cause it was a relay. She was on the opposite side and I was going around the pool the long way because I, you know, I was going, I want to talk to her after the race and, and check in with her, see how she's doing, congratulate her. And I could tell that she was upset because in the race prior, she'd been victorious. Ah. And in this race, there were a lot of good swimmers from the opposite team and she had gotten schooled and it wasn't, she's yet, she doesn't yet understand that you're racing against the timer because at this swim meet, you're the best swimmer at this swim meet, you're number five, but your time improved. And that's what at the end of the year is going to be. What, what, what you're looking at is time, not, not who was in first, you know, and that's hard to explain to a 10 year old at first. And she got to the end of the swimming pool and there were, and she was not first to the wall and she was like upset. So I was on my way over to, to talk to her and, you know, and, and, uh, tell her that she had actually improved on her time. And so it was a victory. And. Uh, Vegas mom was coming the other way around the pool. And this was going to be the first time that the two of us had the, the two of us were going to pass and it would be impossible to avoid making the next step, which Mm. is not to look surreptitiously at one another (laughs) from across the way in a way that my sister leans over and goes, yep, she's doing it again. Uh-huh. <laughs> but actually here you are coming here. I'm coming. We have between 20 feet away and five feet away. We're going to have to have a transaction. And it would have represented the first time at any of these swim meets that someone from my own team, some parent from my own team gave me a gesture of acknowledgement. And it had to happen because we had already met, we had made eye contact multiple times. So this is the, this is the moment. This is the head nod moment. Except I'm anxious about my daughter. She's gotten out of the pool. You can see she's slumped Hmm. from defeat. Oh, you had to make a choice here. I want to get to her <laughs> and wrap her in a towel and say, it is not a defeat. You have, you have, you have bested the clock. You've bested your, this was the best time you've ever swum that right, event. Sure. You're just up against some older, more powerful girls right, here. It's the test that gets, um, that gets harder. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I, in her moment of defeat, I did not want her to stand shivering at the end of the pool. No. And so my, uh, my attention is on her, my eyes on her, 
and I'm aware of Vegas mom coming around the corner. Here is the, here is what is going to be a, you know, a moment of social engagement that I think is very important Mm -hmm. to the whole picture. And I ghost her. I ghost Vegas mom. Yeah, you had to. You didn't have a choice. You had no choice. I, I walked past her and I didn't make eye contact. And I could have focused on my daughter and just turned my attention to Vegas mom for just a second and given her a, like a friendly nod. Hi, but I have, you know, but, and communicated like, uh, and there's no way she was going to like, Hey, let's stop and chat. But, but I didn't, I, I ghosted her. And in doing so, it was effectively that I negged her. Mm. And from that moment, she has never glanced at me again. No other acknowledgement of my existence, nothing. And I knew it as it happened. I was like, oh, I have done, I've done a terrible thing here. This is a, I have, even in my focus on my daughter, I have, <laughs> I have, I have alienated this person who is clearly also seeking someone else in the world besides. <laughs> she was looking absolute, for you specifically, I dare say. She was, she's also in a desert. She's in a desert of human contact. And she yeah. put, you know, at, on Aloha day, she had this great Aloha dress and you know, she does her, she does her eye makeup a lot more than is necessary for a swim meet, let's say. But I admire that, like put it on, put on the paint. You know, put on the crazy hat in downtown. If you were in a crazy fedora, I might be like, I don't know, man, that's an awful lot. But out here, I crave a fedora, Dan, you, you would show up with a, with some crazy fedora and I would, I would clap you on the back and say, wonderful hat. Right. Sure. Give me something, anything Wear a, a ring that isn't either a class ring or a wedding ring. Wear yeah. a jewelry. I don't even wear jewelry. I'm just looking for it. The 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 teenage girls that are that help out at the swim team, they all wear fraternity sweatshirts, not sorority sweatshirts. Fraternity sweatshirts. Mm-mm. Which is the wrong message. So now Vegas mom is out there somewhere. I don't know. She's alone. Her husband is not at her level. No. You know, they're, they're affectionate. They give one another pecks on the cheek and so forth. But I think that she's a beard, frankly. Really? Mm, I mean, she's very much a trophy beard. Uh-huh. But there's, there's nothing. I mean, his truck is very overcompensating. But now, you know, now I'm all alone. I got no Roger. Roger ghosts me. Uh, <laughs> what are they? The timer's name was Moses, but I kept calling him Amos. <laughs> I mean, not your, so best, I not your best day is what it sounds like. It's, it wasn't the worst day. I mean, she did a great, my, my daughter did a great job at the swim meet and I was very proud of her. Um, but the, but the, the cold chill it put on me. 
Dan, was the feeling that, oh, all suburbs are not created alike. Right. All suburbanites are not alike. No. And if I'm going to transition to being a suburbanite, because, you know, I moved out here and then there was a pandemic. I don't know. I I left Seattle and went into um, a bubble. And now I'm coming out of the bubble and and looking around going, where am I? And I'm, and I, I realize now, oh, the, the, the suburbs are not going to be enough. This suburb is not going to be sufficient. And I don't know where to look. 